Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. It is good. It is sweeter than the honey on a honeycomb. And it is more powerful than a two-edged sword, piercing to marrow and bones. So we lay ourselves before you right now and ask you to pierce us with your word. Show us that you are good and apply the medicine of the gospel to our hearts. So we thank you for the, the, uh, the way that you have done that to Madison and for the, the ways that you have been at work in her story, God. And I pray that we would be a blessing to her as much as she has been a blessing to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so last week I told you about the, the television show Limitless. And so I'm assuming you all went and watched that now. You binge watched all six episodes this week. Uh, and you got to the uh, final episode of Limitless where, uh, you know, if you didn't watch it yet, then there's your homework. And um, all through six episodes, Chris Hemsworth is struggling with his humanity. He's struggling with the, the limits of his mind and his body and his soul. He wants to live as long and as healthy a life as possible. And so he goes through these six stressful tests to try to extend the limits of his life. He uh, walks across a crane on a skyscraper. He swims in cold water. He fasts for four days. He climbs a 100-foot rope. He navigates without a GPS. I know that's probably the hardest one of those things. Anytime I try to navigate without a GPS, I end up turning it on because I can't do it. Uh, and in the final episode, he goes to a retirement village. Or actually, they, they set up a retirement village for him, which is a whole other deal. But he, uh, he goes to this retirement village, and the, and the goal is for him finally to come to terms with his humanity. Uh, and they, they, day one, they put him in a weighted vest with blurry goggles, and I thought this was funny, on Crocs to simulate like instability. Sorry, Croc lovers out there. Apparently that's the model of instability is walking around in Crocs. Uh, in day two, um, they, they, there's more of being in that vest, and eventually they take him out of that vest, and then he has a dance. And that night at the dance, they actually dress up his wife to make her look like she's 50 years older. So he's got to come to terms not only with his own mortality, but with the mortality of those that he loves. Uh, and then in day three, they introduce him to a death doula. I did not know that these existed, but apparently they do. You know, a doula that helps you bring a baby into the world. Now they have death doulas that will walk beside you along uh, your passing at the end of your life. And so this death doula... Uh, walks him through what it would be like, look like for him to die. And they actually uh, stage his death and take him through a death meditation. Um, and the whole time what they're trying to help Chris Hemsworth do is to accept his mortality and adapt to the fact that he is going to age and his body does have limitations and he needs to prepare for that. Um, it's a pretty sobering episode. Uh, and as they, he goes through the episode, he is talking with different people. They actually have him interview real people. They hear their, he hears real stories of aging and loss and struggling with cancer. And um, it, it's very sobering. It's, it's, it's actually a good episode. Um, there's a lot of things that I find interesting about it. Um, in the end, he learns to live each day to its fullest. Right? And it forces him to wrestle with some questions. And uh, I think these are questions that we have to wrestle with. How will we adapt to aging? Um, have we come to terms with our own morality? Have we accepted that those that we love around us are going to pass away at some point and that we will pass away? How will we make each day count? Um, have you wrestled with those questions? I think many of us probably have. Um, 
I thought this, this uh, episode was fascinating because in Limitless, they, they really try to do it from totally a secular perspective. Like there's no mention of God. There's no mention of religion other than him learning Tai Chi at some point, but it's not really about religion. Um, there's no mention of spirituality or religion or God or anything. Yet, when it comes to the end of his, after they fake his death and he's sort of processing what it would be like to die, he says, they said, what did it feel like? And he says, well, it felt like I was drifting into a way into whatever is next. And so you're kind of like, but what's, what's next? And I think it shows, on the one hand, how modern people, we, we want to, modern secular culture, how we want to um, accept death and acknowledge and adapt to it. But at the same time, we don't want to wrestle with the question of what's on the other side of death? And are we prepared for what is on the other side of it? And so, ironically, I think Limitless shows the limitations of a secular worldview when it comes to handling these deeper questions of life. But when we come to the Bible, especially Psalm 90, which we're going to look at this morning, the Bible does address those questions. It does address those deep struggles that we have with our own life, with our own mortality, with our own fragility, right? And what the Bible gives us is not just a... um, a list of things that we can do to help us accept uh, our mortality, uh, for, to adapt to aging, but the Bible gives us something much greater. The Bible gives us an eternal God who can give us eternal life. This is an eternal God who can give us eternal life. And that eternal life is manifested in giving us an eternal home, eternal wisdom, and eternal hope. And that's what we're going to look at this morning from Psalm 90. You're going to see that knowing God gives us an eternal home, an eternal wisdom, and an eternal hope. Uh, This warning, this is going to be a pretty heavy sermon. Psalm 90 is a pretty heavy passage. Uh, But there will be a lighthearted story about a young lady counting her jewelry in the middle of it. So, kids, you can look forward to that. The first thing we see in this passage is that knowing God gives us an eternal home. You see that in verses 1 and 2. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Right? So, um, basically, from the time that Adam and Eve left the garden, from the time that God kicked them out, um, man has been wandering across the face of the earth looking for a home. Uh, And whenever God began to redeem a people, and he made a relationship with this man named Abraham, Abraham was wandering homeless. And then God made him these great promises. He said, I'm going to be your great God. I'm going to make you a great people. I'm going to give you a great home. Right? And Abraham's like, yes, we're going to have a home again. And then they kept wandering. And they kept wandering. And Abraham's, Abraham wandered. And Isaac wandered. And Jacob wandered. And then uh, Jacob's son Joseph uh, was sold into slavery. And he wandered into Egypt. And eventually there was a famine in their land and and all of God's people had to go to Egypt. And there in Egypt, they lived for like 400 years under uh, the oppression of these pharaohs, all with this promise that they were going to get to go home. And then uh, God raised up this man named Moses and Moses saved them from Egypt in this thing we call the Exodus. 
And then they get out of Egypt and they're supposed to go to the promised land. And what happens? They end up wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Homeless. A home is a source of protection and comfort and safety and security. Uh, We need a home because we're fragile people. We need a place to live. They're homeless. But Moses reminds them that that God has been their dwelling place. He has been their home through all generations, from beginning to end of of where they're at here, right? Um, From the time that Adam was kicked out of the garden until this time when they're wandering in the wilderness, God has been their dwelling place through all of those generations. Because God has existed through all generations. You you see that in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or forever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before creation existed, God existed. He is everlasting. He has no beginning and no end. He is self-existent. All of us had a birth date and all of us will have a death date. God has neither one of those two things. He extends into eternity. Um, He has life in and of himself. Uh, One analogy that I read this week was like that God is like this. uh, God is like a painter. And he has painted the great uh, canvas of human history with every detail, every facet that we could have ever imagined. But he is outside of that painting. He existed before the painting and he will exist after the painting. Uh, another analogy that I, that I read was that, that God's eternality is like, if you imagine a sheet of paper that stretched into infinity, and then you took a pen and you drew our timeline on that sheet of paper, we would have a beginning and we might have an end, but that paper will stretch for eternity and we would be one little timeline on the great line of eternity. Um, God, doesn't, God doesn't live in, in moments as we do. Uh, He's not bound by past, present, and future, right? Um, God is eternal. And and Moses is saying here that God has been their eternal home. Um, Like us, they were fragile people that needed a place of hope and security and comfort and protection. And even though they'd been wandering, God was that home for them. Now, Many of us here, we're probably not born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we are more maybe not going to live in Tulsa, Oklahoma our entire lives. In some ways, maybe we have felt like we're wandering. Maybe we felt like we're homeless. Maybe we feel like we're still trying to establish a place of comfort and protection and safety and security. Um, I know I feel that way a little bit. Uh, I grew up in Quito, Oklahoma, where uh, there, we had a family farm. Um, in the Choska River bottoms between uh, Coweta and Redbird and Porter and Haskell. You, you don't know any of that, but it's okay. Uh, and, and for over 100 years, my family lived in that area and farmed that land. And now I've moved away and my dad's moved away. Our families, our families moved. But throughout all those generations... Throughout, you know, my, my kids' generation, they're going to move. They've moved you know, three or four times already. God can still be our dwelling place, no matter where we go as a family. God can still be your dwelling place, no matter where you go. 
Uh, young people, uh, young adults, I know that you're a transient culture. You're a transient group of people. You're, you're uh, marrying and having kids and taking jobs and moving all around. And I think one simple application of this is that God can be your dwelling place no matter where you go. Jesus promises that those who abide in his word will abide with him. And that word abiding means to make a home. That God wants to make a home with you and in you. That the Holy Spirit abides in us. And that Jesus went to prepare a place for us in heaven. And that one day, someday, he's going to return and we are going to dwell with him and he is going to dwell with us. And that's our hope. That because we have an eternal God, we also have an eternal home. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is that knowing God gives us an eternal wisdom. Uh, now, this section is uh, intense, and there's a lot going on here. And so, uh, hold on to your seats. We're gonna um, we're gonna go through some of it. We're gonna we're gonna try to explore it a little bit together here, right? But um, it may be a little bit challenging. It may a little be a little, be a little bit uncomfy. Uh, but I believe that it's important for us to look at. Um, Look here in verse 3. Moses says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Now, what's he talking about? So in, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates man and God enters into a special relationship with him. And God says, I will give you everything you need. All you have to do is trust and obey me. But if you disobey me, then you will surely die. And Adam and Eve disobey him. And then death enters the world. And part of that, uh, and, and when God, uh, in Genesis 3, when God comes to impose this, uh, this sentence on them, the, the judgment on them for their disobedience, um, God says that dust you have came from and dust you will return. Uh, we call that the curse, right? And, and Moses is echoing that curse here when he says that we return to dust. God says, return, O children of man. Um, this curse... Um, that is the uh, wrath. When we talk about God's wrath, we're talking about the manifestation of that curse. When you're under God's curse, you experience God's wrath. Right? And, and that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. That's hard for us to understand and explain. Uh, modern people, we don't want to talk about God's wrath. We don't want to talk about his judgment. Um, but Moses, interestingly enough, was very comfortable talking about God's wrath. If you look verses, through verses 5 through 11 here, um, I'm going to read this again just so it can kind of soak into us. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought, for, we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Um, what Moses is probably... Um, the context of what Moses is saying, what he's probably drawn on, is what he describes in Numbers 14.34. And see, what happened, and what it's describing there is that, so um, Israel wandered around the wilderness, 
And they went to the promised land. So they left Egypt. They're going to the promised land. They get to this, the promised land where they're going to have a new home. And they sent some spies into the promised land to check it out. And those spies saw the land. They saw these people that made them afraid. And then they came back and they gave that report to the people. And when the people heard that report, most of the spies did that. There was a few that were faithful. But most of them said, hey, look, these people are big. They're scary. We don't need to go into that land. We cannot fight them. We cannot defeat them. So they didn't trust and obey God. And so and that journey was 40 days of them spying out the land. And so because they didn't trust and obey God, um, God disciplined them to 40 years of wandering in the desert. He said, you guys are going to wander around the desert for 40 years, and this generation is going to pass away, and the next generation will go into the promised land. And so Moses is drawing on that experience. He's saying, look, we're experiencing the wrath of God in our wilderness wanderings. He knows our sins. He knows that we didn't trust and obey him. He knows that we uh, rebelled against him. And now we're suffering this discipline. It was a time of great pain and great suffering. Now, we hear that and we get really nervous about God's wrath. I think a lot of us do. Um, uh, we, we try to, to deny it, we try to explain it away, and we try to ignore it. And, and I think that's um, partially because we don't want to deal with our own sin. I think that's also partially because in the past, the church has misused the wrath of God and abused it. But we don't want to throw the wrath of God out because the wrath of God and his justice is important for us to understand the gospel. If we don't understand the wrath of God, if we don't understand justice and judgment, then we're going to miss the grace of God. We're going to miss the gospel. We're going to miss experiencing the hope of the gospel. Right? The, the wrath of God flows from God's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable changeable wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth that we've been reciting each week. It's interesting, the Puritans who were probably most known for their doctrine on wrath, did not put the wrath of God in the description of God. But look at all those other attributes that we, that we recite together each week. It's because the wrath of God flows out from his love. It's because he's loving that he has wrath. It's because he's loving that he has justice. And we know this to be true um, in a, in, a, in, a, in a practical sense, right? If you had a judge, let's say you had a judge who was not just, a judge who was not good, a judge who did not render a just verdict, who did not render discipline when it should be. Would you say that that's a good judge? No, you would say a good judge renders a just judgment. Uh, let's say that you, on a parenting situation, right? If you really love your kids, do you institute discipline? Yes. If you really love your kids, do you say no? Do you enforce consequences? Yes. And if you were a parent that didn't do those things, would we call you a good parent? No. I had a friend growing up whose father gave him no rules. And late at night one night, whenever he was open and honest, he said, I know that my dad doesn't love me because he never gives me any rules. Now, if we who are evil know that a good judge institutes good discipline, and if we who are evil know that a good father institutes good discipline, then how much more would God be a good God and a loving father 
to institute discipline and justice. He is good. His his justice and his wrath flow from his goodness. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning and you say, "I, I can never believe in a God of wrath. I would ask you, do you then believe in a God of love? If so, then you must believe in a God of wrath. You have to ask yourself this question. How can a loving God allow justice to go unpunished? You can't believe in a God of love who does not also have some elements of justice and judgment in him. If, if he doesn't have that, then he's not a good God. And you shouldn't worship him. But the God of the Bible exists and he's an infinite, eternal, unchangeable being filled with love and power and wisdom and justice and holiness. And it's because of that that he is a good father and he's a just judge. And we can trust him to do right. Uh, when the, probably the classic text for, for, not under, for, for the wrath of God is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, where Sodom and Gomorrah, where they were sexually immoral in an, ex, in an extreme way. And God's only recourse that he could do was to rain fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Abraham was talking with God about it, uh, eventually Abraham came to the point where he said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And I think that's when we have to come with the wrath of God. We have to trust that God is the judge of all the earth and that he will do right. So what does that mean for us? Notice that the wrath of God does not drive Moses away from God, but it actually drives him to God. Right? It actually drives him to wisdom. Right? And that's the, the application. Notice that he flows. There's all of that. And then Moses says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Isn't that interesting? The the wrath of God and the justice of God doesn't lead Moses away from God. It leads Moses to God to gain wisdom. So Moses says, number your days. Now, I numbered my days this week. I have been living, as of today, 15,379 days. So there's, you know, Moses, okay, Moses, I did it. I numbered my days, right? It could be, it could be, Moses could be saying, hey, count your days. And that would be fun. Uh, last week, Francis got a, a birthday gift uh, with lots of jewelry from her aunt. And she got all the jewelry out and she put it on the floor and she numbered all of her bracelets. And there were 42 bracelets. And she was really excited about numbering all of those bracelets, right? But I think, I think what... Uh, Moses is calling us to is more than just counting our days, but it's taking an account of our days. Like, like it's, it's considering them, right? So if I number my days and I only have 15,379 days, then that means, first of all, that I haven't lived that long. Numbering your days is pretty humbling, isn't it? Think about the span of human history. 15,000 days for me is not long. And so there's a lot that I can learn. There's a, there's a certain amount of humility I have to take that God is eternal and I am not. My dad used to say, hey, you may be smarter than me, but I have more wisdom. When you number your days, you find out that that is very true. So numbering your days creates some humility. But second thing it does is numbering your days forces to ask a question, how many days do I have left? Right? The average adult male living in the U.S. has a life expectancy of approximately 73 years. That's 26,000 days. If I live to 73, then I'll have 11,000 days left. 
I've already lived over half my life. And so asking that question then forces me to ask this question. How have I used my time? I'm not going to live forever. Have I made my days count? So if we count our days, we have to ask ourselves, have we made our days count? How have we used our time? Uh, My college used to come to me all the time and say, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. And I would say, okay, let's see how busy you are. How many days are, how many hours are in a week? And we'd take that number. And I would say, okay, let's subtract out everything that you have to do, like to survive, like all your commitments. And we'd start subtracting all that out. And we'd do the math. And we would subtract the total number of hours in a week versus the total number of hours that were committed. And then we would come up with a number. And they were always surprised by how many hours they actually had left that were unaccounted for. And I would say, now, how are you using those hours? And are these hours good hours? And I think when Moses is telling us to count our number our days, he's asking us, how are you using the time that you have been given? Are you making your days count? And so I think that is a path of wisdom. We can ask ourselves, are we making our days count? Are we living life not just to the fullest, but to the godliest? And I would say, you know what? Here would be my encouragement to you. That um, I, I think one day, someday, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to renew this whole earth and he's going to unite heaven and earth. And I don't know how the, what that's going to look like. I don't know the details of all that. Right? But I know this, that people are going to be around for eternity. And the best way that you can invest your time is by investing it in people. And helping people move wherever they're at in their spiritual journey towards godliness. Uh, There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. It's a a fantastic sermon. I highly encourage it. I can't read it all to you this morning. Um, But he says this, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke and work, with we marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ truly hides. The glorifier and the glorified glory is truly hidden. The best way that you can make your days count is by looking at your neighbor, your friends, your family members, your co-workers, and asking how can, I, how can I help them move towards glory? How can I be of service to moving them towards heaven? I think numbering our days gives us that kind of wisdom. And numbering our days helps us to appreciate our days. When you number your days, you realize that each day is a gift. That each day is a gift. That God has given you a time on this earth uh, that you didn't earn, that you don't deserve, and that, that you can use that time to help others. Um, there was a time uh, in, when I was in high school when I really had to ask myself, have I used my time well? Um, there was a, a girl in my journalism class. Uh, she was a funny, smart, Christian girl. Uh, she was, she was uh, morally speaking, she was uh, very opposite of me. I had been uh, wild and rebellious and uh, had ran from God, and, and, and she was just the exact opposite. She was, she was a good Christian girl. 
And one night she was in a car accident. She was buckled up. She was doing the right thing. They're going down the road. They swerve to, to miss a gear. Uh, they, they, they wreck into the, into the ditch. She hits her head on the side of the door, uh, and she passes away because brain, from brainstorming. And I just remember that. I remember that happening, and I remember uh, just sitting there, hearing that story, being in my journalism class, and just thinking to myself, all the dumb things I've done, all the ways that I've broken God's heart, all the times that I have driven a million miles an hour down a dirt road when that should have been me. And it hit me. If I'm still here, then God has a purpose for my life. And I need to make my days count. If you are still here, God has a purpose for your life. There's a reason why you're still here. Every day you have is a gift. Ask yourself, am I making it count? And I think that leads us finally to consider our our sin, to ask ourselves. You know, you you have to be honest about your sinfulness. Moses is honest about their sinfulness. He's saying, look, Lord, our secret sins are going to be laid before you. Look, here's our, our frailty. Here's our humanity. Here's our failure. He's honest about those sins. And when he's honest about those sins, that's when he finds hope. And that's the last thing we see is that knowing God gives us an eternal hope. Look back at verses 13 to 17. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Moses, uh, the, the wrath of God doesn't make Moses run from God. He actually turns to God. He says, return, Lord. We need you. We need your presence. Have pity on us. Save us. Rescue us. And then he says, uh, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That we may rejoice. Uh, That steadfast love there is God's hesed love. That is the same love that compelled God to make that covenant promise to Abraham. And to keep that covenant promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph to the Israelites, to Moses, and now to this generation wandering in the wilderness. Uh, That steadfast love is what the Jesus Storybook Bible calls the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Moses calls on that love. He says, have pity on us, Lord. Forgive us. This This is the same God that Moses met in the burning bush And Moses said, what is your name? And he said, tell him, I am who I am. I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in what? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses is calling on that God. And he's saying our only hope for salvation is for you to pity us, for you to remember your promises and to save us. It is in that hope that God's people lived for Thousands of years, for a thousand years after that. And it's not hope that they still lived whenever Jesus came to the earth. They were fragile, they were finite, they were failures, and eventually comes to earth, Jesus comes to earth, and John records it in John 8. We read it for the call to worship. He's arguing with the Jews because they don't believe that he is God. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to kill him. 
Why? Because when Jesus said, I am, he was saying that I'm the same God that kicked out of me about the garden. I'm the same God that made a covenant with Abraham. I'm the same God that met Moses in the burning bush. I'm the same God that Moses called on in the wilderness. I am the eternal Lord of space, time, and dimension. But I have made myself become finite like you. And I have come to earth to dwell among fragile, finite failures. And if you are willing to come to me and admit your sinfulness, to admit your brokenness, to admit that you have failed, then and then alone can you receive salvation. Then, when you, then and then alone can you receive forgiveness. Uh, and Jesus, you see in his entire life, he is walking amongst failures and he is redeeming failures like Zacchaeus, a, a, a failed tax collector. And he's walking amongst self-righteous religious people like Nicodemus. And he is redeeming them. And he's redeeming sexually immoral women. And he's redeeming uh, passionate failures like Peter. He dwelled among those failures to rescue those failures. The infinite, eternal Lord of the universe became finite. He became temporary. He became fragile. He became frail. And on the cross... The wrath of God, God's curse, was poured out on him to the point that he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So that we experience the wrath of God. We can find forgiveness in Jesus. So that when we're struggling, when we're wandering, when we're in the wilderness, we don't have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can say, my God, my God, save me. Have pity on me. Pour out your steadfast love on me. And Jesus, he died on that cross and he rose from the grave and he still lives in heaven where he's preparing a place for anyone who is willing to admit that they are a failure. And to put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Um, a friend of mine tells a story about his brother. I'll keep it short here, but um, his brother had um, had an affair, and that affair, he he uh, his conscience was stricken. He confessed that affair to his wife, and his wife and him went through a time of separation. Uh, and it was during that time of separation one night that he found himself. Um, a drunk and alone watching television by himself at night and he started counting his days and he looked at himself and said, what am I doing? And he got on his knees and he asked God to save his soul and have pity on him and the Lord did. And he found forgiveness. He reconciled with his wife and now he's living in the hope of the gospel. That hope is there for failures. That hope is there for us. That hope is there for people who are counting their days and realize that they have not lived the life they should have lived. But Jesus did for them. And and most of us probably won't go through a situation like that, but most of us are going to live with the daily failures of feeling like I failed to be a good Christian. I failed to be a good husband. I failed to be a good friend. I failed to be a good wife. I failed to be a good worker. And that Jesus saves you in all of those little failures as much as he does in the big failures. That's where you rest in him. That's where you trust him. I had a friend this week who was confessing that they, 
They, were, they felt like a failure. They felt like the perfectionism and the, their, their performance was just not what they thought it would be. And it was so encouraging to be able to look at him and say, and this is exactly why you need the gospel today as much as you did the first day you became a Christian. That's the good news of the gospel, friends, that this, this eternal home, this eternal wisdom, this eternal hope is available for us today the same way it was for Moses, the same way it was when we became a Christian, and one day, someday, we will see that eternal hope in heaven with Jesus. Let's pray that God would help us live in light of that hope today. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this eternal hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you for giving us his home, his wisdom, and his hope. Help us to live in light of that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.